Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Charles Collins Chase joins us now to discuss a case that proved to be interesting beyond just the majority decision. It also features a strongly worded dissent. Now, Charles, the case we'll look at today is American Axle and Manufacturing Inc. versus Nipco Holdings LLC. Tell us a little bit about the history of the case. The American Axle case stems from a litigation in the District of Delaware. The patent owner American Axle and Manufacturing, or AAM, sued Nipco Holdings for patent infringement, and the parties filed cross motions for summary judgment as to patent eligibility under 35 U.S.C. Section 101. The district court granted summary judgment that the claims are patent ineligible under Section 101, leading to this appeal. The patent in suit relates to propeller shafts, or prop shafts, with liners that are designed to dampen various types of vibrations. Prop shafts are used in cars to transmit rotary power in a driveline. These prop shafts are typically made from thin-walled steel or aluminum tubing, and they therefore are prone to several different kinds of vibration, which cause undesirable noise. Using a liner inside the prop shaft can dampen these vibrations. In the American Axle case, the claims of the patent in suit recited methods for manufacturing a shaft assembly of a driveline system that includes, among other steps, tuning a liner to dampen at least two of the three types of vibration, called shell mode vibrations and bending mode vibrations. The claims, including the dependent claims, recite limitations requiring certain performance characteristics, such as requiring the liner to be tuned to within plus or minus 5% of the prop shaft's bending mode natural frequency. The claims also recite limitations requiring the liner to have certain structural properties, such as a liner comprising a structural portion with a plurality of fingers that extend from the liner to the inside of the prop shaft. The district court held that the asserted claims of the patent in suit are directed to laws of nature, specifically Hooke's Law and friction damping. Hooke's Law is a law of physics that can be used to determine the relationship between an object's mass and stiffness and the frequency at which the object vibrates. The district court held that the patent claims amounted to no more than instructing one to apply Hooke's Law to achieve the desired result of attenuating certain vibration modes and frequencies. The district court also concluded that the claims did not provide a particular means of how to craft the liner and prop shaft in order to do so. The district court further concluded that the elements recited in the claims consist of well-understood, routine, conventional activity that was already engaged in by the scientific community, and that those steps, when viewed as a whole, add nothing significant beyond the sum of their parts taken separately. Based on this analysis, the district court held the claims ineligible under Section 101 and granted NEPCO's motion for summary judgment. And what did the Federal Circuit decide, and how did it reach its conclusion? In a majority decision authored by Judge Dyke, in which Judge Toronto joined, the Federal Circuit affirmed the district court's grant of summary judgment that the claims of the patent in suit are ineligible under Section 101. The majority first analyzed whether the claims are directed to a natural law under the first prong of the Mayo-Alice test. It determined that the claims are directed to tuning liners and that Hooke's Law undergirds their design of a liner so that it exhibits a desired damping frequency. The majority thus concluded that the claims of the patent in suit are directed to the utilization of a natural law, here, according to the majority, 
Hooke's Law, and possibly other natural laws in a particular context. The majority spent a lot of time discussing its concerns that the patent claims do not describe a specific method for applying Hooke's Law in the context of tuning prop shaft liners. AAM argued that tuning a liner to dampen vibrations from two different vibration modes, such as shell mode vibrations and bending mode vibrations, is a complex endeavor that involves more than mere application of Hooke's Law. For example, AAM's expert had testified in the district court that a prop shaft liner is more complicated than a simple spring because the liner is a complex object with different stiffnesses in different directions, and their physical behavior depends on the location of force applied to the liner, among other factors. The majority rejected AAM's argument that the claimed tuning step was more than mere application of Hooke's Law. The majority stated that the problem with AAM's argument is that the patent claims do not recite a specific mechanism to achieve the desired damping results. The majority noted that the claims do not instruct how the variables would need to be changed to produce the multiple frequencies required to achieve a dual damping result or to tune a liner to dampen bending mode vibrations. The majority described the patent claims as amounting to no more than a trial and error process for determining how to achieve the desired damping result. It noted that although AAM may have discovered patentable refinements of this trial and error process, such as using sophisticated models to design the liners, the claims do not recite any novel computer modeling or experimental modal analysis. The majority thus concluded that the claims did no more than provide a general instruction to use Hooke's Law and possibly other natural laws to engage in an ad hoc trial and error process to tune a liner. The majority recognized that AAM may be correct that its claims describe a system more complex than just a bare application of Hooke's Law, but concluded that even that complexity was insufficient to render the claims patent eligible because the claims did not recite any physical structure or steps for achieving the claimed damping result. The majority next analyzed the second step of the Mayo-Alice test to determine whether the claims recite an inventive concept sufficient to transform them into a patent-eligible application of the underlying natural law. It dismissed AAM's assertion that the claims involve several inventive concepts, including developing a liner that can damp two different vibration modes at the same time. The majority dismissed the inventive concepts AAM identified as no more than a more detailed articulation of the argument that the claims are not directed to a bare application of Hooke's Law. The majority explained that even if the result to which the claims are directed would be new and unconventional, the claims still are no more than an invitation to engage in a conventional trial and error process. The majority thus held that the claims of the patent in suit are ineligible under Section 101, and it affirmed the district court's grant of summary judgment invalidating the patent. The opinion in this case was hardly unanimous, as evidenced by the tone of the dissent by Judge Moore. Tell us more. That's right. Judge Moore wrote a vigorous dissent in this case, disagreeing with numerous aspects of the majority's decision. The dissent is notable in that it not only critiques the majority's application of Section 101 as improperly expanding the section beyond its statutory gatekeeping function, but it also states that the majority exceeded its authority by engaging in impermissible judicial fact-finding. The dissent first takes issue with the majority opinion's description of the natural law that underlies the asserted claims, which, again, the majority described as Hooke's Law and possibly other natural laws. 
the dissent states that Section 101 is monstrous enough. It cannot be that now you need not even identify the precise natural law which the claims are purportedly directed to. The dissent also objects to what it viewed as the majority's improper blending of the patent eligibility and enablement inquiries. The dissent contends that the majority was motivated not by a conclusion that the claims are directed to Hooke's law, but rather by a concern that the patent does not claim precisely how to tune a liner to dampen two modes of vibration simultaneously. As an initial matter, the dissent disagrees with the majority's conclusions regarding the patent's disclosures and the scope of the claims. The dissent notes, for example, that the patent specification includes a particular example of tuned liners for use in a prop shaft with specific dimensions. The dissent also points to the patent's dependent claims, which recite additional limitations to the structure and performance of the liners. For example, the dissent points to claims limiting the material from which the liner can be made claims requiring a liner that extends helically to the prop shaft or that includes a plurality of fingers, and claims requiring the liner to be positioned in a specific place within the shaft. The dissent argues that the majority thus was wrong to conclude that the claims are missing any physical structure or steps and that the claims cover whatever structures or steps happen to work. But more importantly, the dissent objects to what it viewed as improper consideration of facts relevant to enablement under Section 112 as part of the Section 101 inquiry. The dissent warned that the court cannot convert Section 101 into a panacea for every concern we have over an invention's patentability, especially where the patent statute expressly addresses the other conditions of patentability and where the defendant has not challenged them. The dissent particularly criticizes the majority statements requiring that the claims themselves, and not just the patent specification, must detail how the invention achieves the goal of damping two modes of vibration. As the dissent states, even if these claims are enabled, they are still ineligible because the claims themselves didn't teach how. The dissent expresses grave concerns about the effect on patent law of the majority's reasoning conflating the Section 101 and 112 inquiries. In a very colorful turn of phrase addressing the ever-changing nature of Section 101 case law, the dissent states that the majority opinion shows that the hydra has grown another head. The dissent also emphatically disagrees with the majority's analysis under Mayo Alice Step 2 of whether the claims include an inventive concept. The dissent asserts that the claims articulate many inventive concepts and that there exist at least questions of fact about those inventive concepts that should have precluded summary judgment. The dissent calls out one aspect of the invention in particular that AAM had argued was an inventive concept, the use of liners to dampen bending mode vibrations. The dissent first disagrees with the majority's conclusion that AAM's arguments about this particular alleged inventive concept were not properly raised in the district court. The dissent also particularly objects to the large amount of weight the majority gave to a prior art patent cited in the specification of the patent in suit, which the majority found disclosed using a liner to dampen bending mode vibrations. The dissent takes issue with the majority's conclusion that a single prior art patent can establish that the claimed activity was merely conventional and routine. The dissent also notes that this prior art reference was never introduced as evidence in the case and was never cited by either party, and thus argues that the majority's reliance on it was improper. The dissent goes further stating that the majority engaged in its own fact-finding on appeal 
that using a liner to dampen bending mode vibrations was no more than routine and conventional. And finally, the dissent strongly opposed what it viewed as the majority's outright rejection of the second step of the Alice-Mayo test. The dissent quotes a sentence from the majority stating that it makes no difference to the Section 101 analysis whether the use of liners to attenuate bending mode vibrations was known in the prior art. The dissent contends that the majority decision improperly collapsed the two separate prongs of the Mayo-Alice test into a single inquiry. What impact, if any, does Judge Moore's dissent have on the future of the case? The dissent raises many points that AAM echoed in a petition for rehearing it filed on November 18th. AAM's petition makes three primary arguments, all of which are previewed in the dissent. First, AAM contends that the majority erred because it could not articulate the natural law to which the claims are directed. As the dissent noted more than once, the majority referred to the natural law at issue as Hooke's Law and possibly other natural laws. Second, AAM's rehearing petition argues that the majority departed from federal circuit precedents, including the Berkheimer case, that hold that the Section 101 inquiry involves underlying issues of fact. AAM contends that disputed fact issues here should have precluded summary judgment. AAM also makes the same contention as the dissent that the majority made new fact findings for the first time on appeal, particularly regarding the prior art patent on which the majority relied to conclude that damping, bending mode vibration using a liner was conventional and routine. Finally, AAM argues that the majority erroneously applied a Section 101 analysis that subsumed the enablement requirement of Section 112. All three of those points were raised in detail in Judge Moore's dissent. Although the court rarely hears cases on banc, here, the inclusion of such a vigorous dissent by Judge Moore may increase the likelihood that the full court rehears this case. There are other judges who in the past have shared Judge Moore's concerns regarding the expansiveness of Section 101, including the extent to which other statutory sections should be allowed to permeate the Section 101 inquiry. At the very least, this dissent guarantees that other federal circuit judges are very well aware of this case. And finally, Charles, what are some takeaways the legal community should consider from both the majority decision and the dissenting opinion? I think there are at least four main takeaways here, and the first and most important is that the federal circuit is analyzing patent eligibility under Section 101 by considering facts and arguments that have traditionally been part of the enablement analysis. The Supreme Court in Mayo and Alice arguably already injected aspects of novelty under Section 102 and obviousness under Section 103 into the 101 inquiry by requiring claims to embody an inventive concept based on elements that are not merely routine or conventional. And in recent years, the Federal Circuit has increasingly blended aspects of Section 112 into its patent eligibility analysis by looking at the specificity of the claims and requiring more detail in how the claims are directed to any inventive concept. But this case is a particularly clear example of how the court may view elements of the enablement inquiry as also being relevant under Section 101. It is also quite clear in demanding that the claims themselves must recite the elements that make the claims patent eligible. The majority explained that it would not be enough if the claims were directed to some new and unconventional result if the claims themselves did not also specify how to obtain those results. Another takeaway is that American Axle may reflect a shift from some recent Federal Circuit cases, such as Vanda, in which claims that embody a natural law may still be patent eligible if they apply that law in some specific and useful fashion. Here, 
The claims recited methods of manufacturing, a shaft assembly, that included tuning the liner, and AAM argued that the claims thus were not directed to any underlying natural law. The majority quickly rejected this argument and instead focused on what it understood to be the focus of the claimed advance. In other words, the court may be requiring more to show that a claim that involves a natural law is a patent-eligible application of that law. Another takeaway is that this case reflects a continuation of the trajectory of Section 101 case law over the past decade, in which the statutory section has been applied to an ever-growing list of invention types. Ten years ago, after the Bilski case, the primary focus was on patents claiming so-called business methods. Soon after, we began to see many Section 101 challenges to patents claiming computer software or systems, which eventually led to the Alice case. And although computer-based methods remain a primary focus for Section 101 challenges, the analysis is now being applied to patents in essentially every category. Here, the claims involved a method of manufacturing a tangible and more industrial-age item, an automobile prop shaft, but they still face the same fate as most business method patents do. And finally, this case demonstrates the ongoing tensions within the Federal Circuit when it comes to Section 101. The pointed statements in this case show that the court remains divided on how to apply that section. The court has been asking for additional guidance from the Supreme Court on Section 101, including in the Federal Circuit's recent denial of rehearing in the Athena case. In Athena, the order denying rehearing had four dissents and four concurring opinions, many of which sought direction from the High Court. We can now add the points raised in the dissent in American Axel as just further examples of issues where the Supreme Court's guidance may be needed to resolve the Federal Circuit's internal tensions on how to handle Section 101. Our guest has been Charles Collins Chase, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.